Okay, Parshas Truma, we begin the series of Parshas which begin the construction of the Mishkan, the building of the tabernacle, of course, Parshas Truma, Tetzave, are two full Parshas in which Hashem speaks to Moshe about what needs to be done, and then we're going to have two Parshas, Vayakal Pekude, in which they actually do it, because this year is a, what's known as an Iber year, we have the extra month of Adar, speaking of which, today is Rosh Chodesh Adar, for Rosh Chodesh of the first month of Adar. So because we have the extra month, all of these, which are often double parshios, are split up. And so we are going to have many weeks, about four, four full weeks, uh, really almost five full weeks of the Mishkan, talking about the Mishkan. So uh, let's jump in. We have been working through the writings of Rav Hirsch primarily over the last couple of weeks, and we will continue to do so, sharing some of his thoughts on the building of the Mishkan. He has a number of really, really important and uh, insightful comments, uh, which we will get to. Let us begin. I will share the screen, and let's start learning a little bit. So the parsha begins as follows. There you have it in front of you, with the English as well. So we've read over the past couple of weeks, Parshas, we've read about the giving of the Torah in Parshas Yisro, the Aseris Hadibros, the Ten Commandments. Last week we read Parshas Mishpatim. We read over 70 different mitzvahs that were given to the Jewish people immediately afterwards, in which we learn about uh, mostly about civil law, tort law, about uh, behaviors between man and fellow man, how one needs to uh, uh, treat uh, one's neighbor acting appropriately, and then we move into the construction of the Mishkan. There's much debate, which we are not going to get into this afternoon, exactly when was the commandment for building the Mishkan given to the Jewish people. Chronologically, reading the Chumash, it was given to us before the sin of the golden calf, which we're going to read about in two weeks' time. This was given to us here even before any particular fallings, failings, or sins. Many of the commentators learned that the Torah is just out of order, and that really the sin of the golden calf happened first, and as a response to that, we are given the mitzvah of building the Mishkan. Be that as it may, that's a major discussion, not our particular discussion for this afternoon. Let's learn a little bit about how it was constructed and some of the materials, which is really what Rav Hirsch is going to focus on. Which is a, important to note for Rav Hirsch's first comment, is Hashem speaking to Moshe, and he says, Tell the Jewish people, speak to the Jewish people, and they need to take for me, literally, take for me, truma, May ace kolish asher yidvenuli bo from each person whose heart motivates him, whose heart inspires him, tikhu es terumasi from them, from those people who want to give, take my truma. Now the reality is the truma, part of the truma. Rashi comments in his first comment here in the parsha. The word truma appears three times in the first two psukim we read, or the first three psukim. To which Rashi quotes from the sages, there were actually three different give uh, uh, gifts that were required. Two of them were half shekel gifts that were required from each Jew to give a half shekel, and then the third one was whatever person wants to give. It was an open policy, whatever moves you. So even though the, the language here is. What, whoever's heart motivates him to give, the truth is part of the donations were actually required. It was a head tax on each person of a half a shekel that they were required to give, and that's a, a half shekel was required throughout the existence of the temple, whenever the base, wherever and however long the base of Mikdash stood, they would give a half a shekel in order for it to be kept up. But the message of a person has to want to give, a gift that's given without the love, without the desire that, so to speak, pulled from them against their will, is not any gift that that's of particular interest uh, to Hashem. And here it is, 
take for me, from the ones who really want to give, those are the people from whom I want to receive. Uh, we've spoken about that at length in the past. Rav Hirsch points out on the way that this is structured, in which Hashem is speaking to Moshe, and he says to Moshe, take for me this truma, as if the monies and the gifts, which we're going to learn, the materials that are donated, go from the people to Moshe, and then they're given to the Beis HaMikdash, they're given to the construction of the Mishkan, still in the desert it was. But not directly, because Hashem speaking to Moshe, he says, V'yikhuli truma, you take it, and then uh, uh, the very next pasuk, pasuk Gimel, on the bottom of your page, V'zos truma, this is indeed the gift, Asher Itam, that you will take from them, Zahav v'chesef and choshes, it's as if it goes from the people to Moshe, and then Moshe will then give it to the artisans and those who need and that intermediate step, says Refurish, is not an accident that it's phrased that way. Moshe, you take it, and it's on behalf of the people that you accept it, and then you dispense it to those who need it in order to actually build a Mishkan. As Refurish says, nothing is given directly to God. It seems like it is. I know you're, giving, you're donating the money to the Mishkan, but you don't give it directly to Hashem. But the gifts of each individual are given to Moshe representing the community. This is a theme he develops at great length. We're going to speak about it two more times even just this afternoon. And then from the community, we build a Mishkan. No individual can say, I built a Mishkan. No individual can say or feel, I'm responsible for building the Mishkan. The community needs to build the Mishkan. The Jewish people need to, as a whole, construct it. And the way the monies are therefore given is that it goes through Moshe, and then from Moshe, Moshe representing the community, then it goes to the Mishkan. And this implies in his language, it is not the individual, but the community who has to erect the institutions for God's purposes. It is not for a single giver, but for a community to feel it's responsible that those arrangements are taking place. And this is, throughout Jewish history, a critical component that a community has to feel the responsibility to make sure that the Jewish institutions are well off. There are always individual donors. The communities thrive. They need them, 100%. But it can never be that a community... Well, it's not my... The Yenem over there, he's the big veer, he's the wealthy donor, he's going to take care of the shul, he's going to take care of the school, he's going to take care of the kolel... It's his problem. It's not his problem. It's a community issue. It's a community merit to feel the responsibility of making sure that the Jewish institutions are well off and healthy. And says Rav Hirsch, in the first um, collection, the first campaign that is uh, you know, set off to the building of the Mishkan, Hashem says to Moshe, you'll take it and then you'll give it out to Betzal and whoever needs it, but it needs to be a sense of a community responsibility. We'll get back to this in a moment. Hashem then gives Moshe the list of the materials. What is it that we need? So, Pasagim, we just read it briefly. We'll repeat it. V'zos ha-truma, asher tikhu me'itam. These are the gifts that you'll accept from them. Zahav v'chesef unachoshes. Gold and silver and copper are three precious metals. We're going to get back to this possible. Let's just get to full context. The Torah isn't going to go through the whole list. Utcheles v'argaman, blue and purple, Tolash, Shani, Veshesh, Ve'izim, different yarn, fine linen, goat's hair, Orose Lima, Adamim, ram skin, uh, different, various different types of uh, skins, and acacia wood, Atzei Shitim, Shemen Lama'or, we need oil to, to light, and Bissamim, we need spices for the Shemen Hamishcha, for the anointing oil, we need Ketores, we need the incense, and the different uh, elements that are going to be used to burn, Avnei Shoam, Avnei Miluim, we need special stones, precious stones for the breastplate, and then, Vo'asuli mikdash v'shachanti b'socham. 
you will make for me a mikdash and I will dwell amongst them. A couple of points here that refers uh, picks up on, and uh, let's go in, uh, in order. The first, he, t- he speaks a lot about the materials. Let's just focus on one, and that is the materials, the first one that he lists, Zahav v'chesef unachoshes, gold and silver and copper. Metal plays, these precious metals, play a major role in the construction of the Mishkan, both in the Mishkan in the desert and in the base of Mikdash that would eventually stand in Yerushalayim. Gold, particularly, as well as the silver and the copper, uh, has a prominent role. Refers points out there are three aspects of these precious metals that are symbolic. Every, he has a lengthy uh, piece describing all the symbolism and all of the materials that were used in the construction. And in his piece on metal, he says there are three major components of these metals which are reasons why they're used symbolically in the construction of the Mishkan. Number one, he says, physically, the metals are hard. The property of a metal is something which is firm. And the metaphor, the meaning of the fact that there's so much metal in the Beis HaMikdash is that it's a sign of strength and a sign of firmness, even what we call the soft metals. But metal itself is, a, is an element which has strength and firmness to it, and therefore the Beis HaMikdash should be constructed out of something which has permanence, which has that strength. On the other hand, on another level, I should say, really, metal as well is known for its value. That's the most basic. Why gold and silver are precious metals. They have a certain value to them, and they're expensive, and they shine, they glitter, they, they uh, promote the idea of wealth. Why is that such an important part of the Beis HaMikdash, or the Mishkan? Well, on one hand, on a simple level, it's because it should be a beautiful edifice. It should be the home of Hashem, should be magnificent. It should shine. It should sparkle. It should be a wonder of the world where people come and they say, this is the magnificent base Hashem. It's the house of Hashem. It should, it should be filled with gold and silver and copper. But it has another representation, of first rights, and that is when you see something that has value, so it represents the spiritual values that we really have, and valuing the spiritual values that we have. So the symbolism is, this is something precious, this is something expensive, it's something that everybody runs after and wants to have. There's a certain a spiritual value represented by that that we also have to run after, yearn to have, and simply value when we see it in others. In the same way you see gold and silver, today's, uh, today's manifestations of money are different than gold and silver. Maybe diamonds, big houses, cars, clothing, whatever the case may be. Like, oh, that person. There are values, spiritual values, that when we see them, we should also look and say, that's the value. I, I, want, I want that for my kids. I want that for myself. And to be able to see that. That's the symbolism of those items. But there's a third symbolism of these precious metals. A beautiful message that refers sees in that. And that is, these metals need to be processed. Metals need to be refined. They need to go through a purification process to actually get them into the final state of strength and firmness and value that has to go through a process. The impurities have to be removed. They have to be shaped. They have to be formed. And that message is goodness and truth. The highest of values that we have are often mixed together with that which is evil and untrue in the concept of a human being. And the human being has to purify ourselves to make sure that the goodness and the truth is refined and perfected from the impurities that we all have within us. And that's the message. And how is that done? 
How do you go through that process? So you need a lot of fire and you need a hammer and you bang it out and you shape it and you form it. And in that process of first rites, in the same way as the, the words of the Torah are referred to as fire, as ash, and the words of Hashem as a hammer, and in the heat, you can take a metal and you make it soft and malleable and you can form it and you can shape it and you can purify it. And then when you take it out of the furnace, now it hardens in the form that it is. And now it's unmovable, unchangeable. It is what it is in its pure, hard, firm state. That's the metaphor of the Jew in which we need to be, so to speak, through the fire of Torah. We need to be shaped. We need to be formed. We are not born perfect. The metal is not created perfectly. It needs to be refined. There's a message. No one is born perfect. It does not exist. We all have our stuff. We have our issues. We have our shortcomings that need to be worked on. So the, the fact that a person has a shortcoming, that's great. Work on it. The fire of Torah, the word of Hashem like a hammer, can bang, can shape, can form. And then once it's formed, then we can take ourselves out of the furnace. You'll never change. Now you're in that permanent shape and you'll remain that way. But the message to all of us, says Refersh, is, yeah, gold is precious. Gold is precious. It has to be processed. It has to be hammered out. It has to be formed. It has to go into the fire to come out in a purified way. Hashem expects that from us. The game of life is not to be born perfect, go through life and die. No, it's to be born imperfect and work our way through life towards perfection, always refining, always become more and more pure, becoming more and more valuable along the way, that when we finish, after 120 years, we present the final product, so to speak, to the heavenly throne, and say, yeah, you remember what I was like when I was young? Remember what I was like as a teenager in my early 20s? Look at what I became. Look at the purity, the refineness, the value, the glitter that I now have, just like the precious metals that we have. And that's why there's such a heavy emphasis, says Refersh, on the idea of uh, metal in, in the base I make this Very nice, fine idea. He, he takes it a little bit further in, in specifically, I'll just mention this briefly, uh, copper, silver, and gold, the, the three different particular metals in which he says, copper really represents more of an ignoble nature, not yet refined, at the lowest level, the least value. Silver is something that is still requiring perfection, but being able and fit to be refined. Meaning it represents the stage of copper is not even ready to be refined. It doesn't even have this, the, the materials yet ready to refine it. Silver is ready for that, and gold is the final product. So I can't comment on the actual natures of the metal, copper, silver, and gold is how he lines it up, but he sees in that the message of the different values. In other words, one can ask the question, you want to make a mishkan, so just have all gold. Gold is the most valuable. Why should there be any silver? Why should there be copper? Just make it the best. They're actually different stages, and the, rep- and the representation of those different stages is, you know, copper is not yet ready, silver is ready for the process, and gold is already in it. And that's a phrase that, you know, uh, those in, in growth mindset will always say, like, I'm ready for it. You know, it's one thing to be there. I'm ready for growth. I'm looking for it. I'm ready to be refined. That's what we, that's what we can ask for. You know, I've mentioned this many, many times, you know, on the high holidays. They always say, you know, somebody who comes to the high holidays and there's like, you know, entertain me, Rabbi. Inspire me, Rabbi. It's never going to work. I, I, no Rabbi is going to be entertaining and inspiring enough for somebody who's sitting back and saying, you know, okay, let me, let me have a good show. Somebody who shows up and says, I want it. I'm looking for it. I want to be inspired. You'll find it everywhere. 
You'll find it everywhere. But you have to be ready for it. Are you, are you ready? Or are you ready to be ready? Or are you ready to be ready to be ready? That's always the question that a Jew needs to be asking themselves for growth, for change. That's represented by silver. And then gold is represented, says Refersh, as that stage of actually being refined and achieving that level of, uh, of value. Okay, uh, he has on all of the different... Uh, materials, but let's, uh, for our sake this afternoon, move forward, because he brings it into the Asuli Mikdash. The Torah then concludes, not concludes, but after the list of the materials that are necessary, the Asuli Mikdash v'shochanti b'socha. Make for me a Mikdash, and I will dwell amongst them. And the first points out on the two concepts in this Pasuk. One, the Asuli Mikdash is our responsibility. That's the Jew's job is, you, mil- you make me a Mishkan. Build me a Mishkan. That's us. The second half of the Pasuk is what will happen when we do Vishachanti Bisocham, and I will dwell amongst them. So that Hashem says, if you do yours, you make a Mikdash, you build me a Mishkan, I will dwell amongst you. Now, Refer says, those are the two components our job, Hashem's job. At the end of Sefer Vayikra, so just scale back for a moment. We're towards the end of Sefer Shmos. Well, we're going to read now our four or five parshios describing the building of the Mishkan, the instructions, and then the actual construction. Sefer Vayikra is then going to be teaching us about how the Mishkan functions, what the Kohanim do, how we bring the offerings and the Korbanos, all the different things that go on in Sefer Vayikra. And then Sefer Vayikra is going to conclude with what's known as the Tochacha, the admonition, the curses that will befall the Jewish people at the very end of Sefer Vayikra, Parshas Bichu Kosai. That's the structure of how we're now going to lay out the next several uh, weeks, months almost, in, in the reading of the Torah. Refersh points out, at the very end of Sefer Vayikra, the end of this entire component of Mishkan-centered uh, parshios, the building of the Mishkan, the instructions, and then how to make the Mishkan function, all Sefer Vayikra, at the end of those curses, which will befall the Jewish people if you do not observe the laws of the Torah, the Torah then says, but if you do observe... I will place my presence in your midst. Which he says is an obvious uh, follow-up on the puzzle that we just read. The beginning of the process says, Make for me a mikdash, and I will dwell in your midst. And at the end of Sefer Vayikra, we almost have the exact same phrase, I will place mishkani, I will place my dwelling in your midst. Says Refersh, it is... Um, in his language, it only requires a glance at these pasuk, psukim to conclude that when Hashem says, I will cause my presence to dwell amongst you, he is not referring only to the actual physical structure of the Mishkan. Certainly his presence will be there, but when he says, my presence will dwell amongst you, it is beyond just the four walls of the actual Mishkan. And when Hashem says, my presence will show itself in your entire happiness, in your prosperity, in your private and national life. When you bring me in, my presence will pervade every aspect of your life. Not just the Mishkan. Point number two, he says, is in order to get to that stage in which Hashem says, my presence will be amongst you, that does not therefore just mean we need to build a Mishkan cleanse our hands and say, we're done. We built the structure, it stands. No, it's not just about a structure. 
The building of the Mishkan represents the dedication of a Jew's life in his private life, in his public life, in his national life, to consecrate everything that he has to carrying out the edicts of the Torah, to living a life of Torah. So that embodied in this Pasuk is an idea of build me a Mishkan and my presence will fill it. Build me a Mishkan of sticks and stones and live your life according to that as if your life is a Mishkan, and I will fill not just the Mishkan, but your entire national existence. I will fill that with my presence. You will sense that presence. You will feel that presence. And what's required of that is your living a life. This is not an idea of you build me a shul and then you're done. You don't have to step foot in the shul. You don't have to live a life of holiness. You, you built the shul. You built the mikdash. You're done. No, 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 no. As, as he says, refer says, yes, the Pasuk here says, build me a mikdash and I'll fill it. But at the end of Vayikra, it says, no, 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 fill, fill, fulfill my laws and I will dwell amongst all of you, not just in the Mishkan the tochacha, the admonition that we're going to read, and he writes, and refers writes, and every single page of the Navi, when the Navi admonishes the people, it's never about, oh, you didn't keep the laws in the Mishkan. No, it's you didn't keep the laws in your house. You didn't keep the laws in your community. You didn't live a life as if you were in the Mishkan. Could have done everything perfectly in the Mishkan. It's not what it's about. It's about living a national existence. That's an embodiment of Hashem's presence in this world. And that's why, as all of our sources pointed out, the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed, not because the Beis HaMikdash wasn't run appropriately, because our homes and our communal lives weren't run appropriately. And all of that, build me a Mikdash, and I will dwell not just in the Mikdash. Live your lives that way, and I will dwell amongst all of you. Then the Torah goes through. Let's just focus on one, the first one here. The Torah now goes through. This is still Hashem speaking to Moshe alone. We're not yet at the point where Moshe conveys this to the people. The first of all of the vessels, the kalim that need to be constructed is the Aron. The Aron which will house the Torah, of course. Va'asu Aron, of Pasuk Yud on the bottom of your page. Va'asu Aron Atseishitim. You'll make for me an ark, an aron, that's made out of the atseishitim, the acacia wood. Omasayim v'chetzi arko, that is two and a half amot long, v'amo v'chetzi rachpo, and an amma and a half wide, v'amo v'chetzi komaso, and a amma and a half high. V'tzipiso oso zahov tahor mibayis umichutz, and you will cover it with gold inside and outside. Meaning, you take a wooden aron, you make a box that's out of wood, you cover the inside with gold, so that when you looked at it, if you looked inside the box, you would see gold, and from the outside, you cover it and plate it with gold. So if you're looking on the outside, it's gold. From the inside, it's gold. You'd say it's pure gold. No, it's not pure gold. In between the two layers of gold is wood. This is uh, eight, uh, the acacia, the... Uh, Atseishitim um, is the wood inside. Many, many meanings of this. We've spoken about a couple of them in the past. Number one, uh, all the measures of the Arun are in half units, as opposed to all the other Kalim are in, in complete units, two Amos, one Amos, whatever it is. The Arun is completely half units, two and a half wide, one and a half long, uh, and one and a half high. Uh, a lot of symbolism, many of the commentators point out, when it comes to Torah, it's never complete. You're never done. There's always more to learn, always more to accomplish. We're always 
you know, on the way to completion, but never completely, uh, never completely there. Refersh points out two things um, on this these series of psukim. Number one, um, that it is ve'asu aron. The first two words are in plural. Ve'asu aron. You, they, plural, shall make an aron. What's of note about that, which is something that would never be noted if this was as we've learning it, the first one we come across, but as we continue, all the other kalim, all the other vessels are all singular. The asita, and you shall make singular the menorah, you shall make the mizbeach singular, you shall make uh, all the, the, the washings, everything is singular. The only thing that's said in a plural language is the aron, the asu aron atseishitim. Every time the Torah talks about the construction of the aron, it's in plural. The first points out, as we already mentioned earlier, in the same way that the donations go through Moshe, so to speak, before they get to the artisans and the craftsmen who actually need to construct the Mishkan, but it doesn't go directly, it goes through someone, it's as if the community is going to build the Mishkan. Nowhere else is that seen as importantly as the Torah itself, in which this is a communal responsibility, so to speak, to build the Aron that's going to house the Torah itself, the actual luchot that Moshe comes down with, this is a communal response. Everyone has to have a hand in Torah. Everyone has a portion in Torah and needs to feel as if they have that portion. It's not someone else's job to do. It's all of our job to uphold the Torah, to learn the Torah, to keep it. Um, and therefore, that is specifically said, plural more than anything else. Refersh also points out, as, as others do, this combination of gold and wood. Really a fascinating thing in which it's gold on the inside, gold on the outside, but the center is wood. Where did the wood come from? So Rashi famously comments, Rashi comments that, uh, asks us where they get wood in the desert from. So Rashi says, when Yaakov Avinu came down from, from Canaan to settle in the land of Mitzrayim in Egypt, he planted these cedar trees so that they would have wood to take with them when they left Mitzrayim. And there was a tradition passed on from generation to generation as the trees grew and developed. They were in Egypt for 210 years. That this is the wood that you're going to need to build the Mishkan. So that when you leave Mitzrayim, nurture these trees and make sure you take them with you because you're going to need the wood. That's the medrash that Rashi quotes where the wood came from. As has been pointed out, I know we spoke about this many times. I, I, I try to speak about this every year because it's one of the most important messages. Sometimes we give an entire share just on this Rashi, but we'll just mention it briefly. Yaakov Avinu, when he gets down to exile, when he gets down to Egypt, he'd lived in, Mitzra, in, in Eretz Canaan until that point. He plants a tree that's a tree that's going to symbolize the redemption. That's a tree that's going to symbolize when we leave here, we're going to build a Mishkan. We're going to build a Beis HaMikdash and you're going to need these trees. So that every day in the exile, he would say to his children and to his grandchildren and to his great-grandchildren, take care of these trees. Why, Why Zaydi? Because right now we live in Egypt, but we don't belong here. And these are the trees that we're going to take with us when we leave. These are the trees that we're going to need to build a Mishkan so that however difficult our stay here goes, on both sides really, whether it's pleasant and it's luxurious and we're affluent, you take care of that tree because we're not staying here. You're taking that tree with us when we go home. This is not our home. And when it's a disaster here, when it's, when it's the oppression and the slavery of Mitzrayim, and you think this is never going to end, 
it will. You'll look at that tree also and you'll see however bad, however dark, however gloomy and painful it is, those trees symbolize that when we leave and we will, when Hashem takes us out, these are the trees, the wood that we're going to take with us to be able to build the Mishkan. Many, many beautiful, important lessons in the idea of exile, planting the tree of redemption, planting the tree that we're going to need, both in times of plenty to look at it and remember, but I don't belong here. This is not my home. We're leaving here at some point. And in times of disaster also to see that tree and to know it will come to an end. Hashem will redeem us and take us out. What Rav Hirsch points out is that that wood then is in between the gold. And that going on in what he already expressed to us, what we learned earlier, the gold represents firm. It represents hardness. It represents unchanging nature in the face of every other element that's in, in front of it, but it doesn't move. It's too permanent in its shape and in its form. And that, he says, is the symbolism of the Aron. The Torah is housed in an Aron that's gold on the outside and gold on the inside. And that represents the unwavering dedication to the principle of the Torah that no matter what is going on outside or inside, forces and pressures inside the home and forces and pressures from the outside that want to make you change, veer off course, it has to be housed in a gold, the highest, most refined metal container that represents we don't budge, we don't move, we are true to the principles of the Torah that is housed inside this. But in between those two layers of gold is wood. Wood comes from a living, growing uh, element. A tree is alive. It changes it, it grows. And in between the hardness, firmness, unchanging nature of the gold from the inside and the outside to protect us from the elements of the world around us, and a quick study of Jewish history can prove in every single generation a Jew has had many pressures from inside and from outside to want to take us away from the path that we need to be true to. But inside is wood, is a living living, growing element that says, but the Jew inside, and as much as he needs to be hard and firm inside and outside, but really is a dynamic, living, growing creature that is always in movement, is never, I mean, this is who I am, I don't change. This is what I've done in the past, I'm never going to... There's a place for that, yes. There's gold on the inside and the outside. There's a place to be unyielding, but you have to be a piece of wood at the same time to know that our job and our goal is to grow, is to change, is to do new things. You know, that great phrase, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Good things, we're not dogs. We can always learn new tricks. We can always take on new mitzvot. We can take on new behaviors. We can go to new classes. We can, one day we're going to go back to shul. You're going to see, we're going to go back. All of these things are the combination of what a Jew has to be. And it's symbolized by the Aron, wood in the middle, surrounded by gold, because they're both true. They're both true. You have to be hard and firm, and you have to be a piece of wood. I'll conclude. There's a beautiful uh, piece of Gemara that we just learned in Dafyomi about a week ago, in which the Gemara um, uh, praises the traits, the attributes of David Amelach, King David. And the Gemara says that when David Amelach would sit to learn Torah, Torah, he would bend himself over like a worm. And that was a sign of humility. He refused to take a seat in the place where he really should have occupied as the king above everybody else. He wanted to be on the floor with everybody. When he had approached the Torah to understand it, it was the humility of a worm. But when he went out to war, he was like hard, like a piece of bark. There the Gemara is using the bark as opposed to a worm as something firm and hard. 
And the Gemara is saying, the, the godless, the greatness of Dovin HaMelech was understanding there's a time and a place of humility. There's a time and a place to recognize that there are those that know more than you. There's an entity that's greater than you. And you have to humble yourself before such entities that are so much greater than you. And there's a time to say, I'm the leader of this army and we are going to attack and protect ourselves with a fierceness that's going to be unyielding. And David Amalek knew when to bend like a worm and when to be hard like a piece of wood. And the Aron symbolizes, Tas says, refers to the same two ideas. There's gold inside and outside. And that represents a strength in the face of elements that, that want us to veer from our true path. But in between those two is the wood, in this sense, the wood being a sense of growth, a sense of change, a sense of being alive and dynamic. And that's what's required of all of us knowing, know when to hold them, know when to fold them, when to be hard and firm, and when to be soft and malleable. And that is our task. All of the symbolism here encompassing just a few of the comments from Refresh. Uh, look forward to continue. We have a couple of weeks still of uh, learning about the Mishkan as, uh, as things are set up. And uh, God willing, we'll be able to uh, continue to do so. Wishing everybody a wonderful afternoon and see you all next week.